Hello. Welcome to part two of the Zero Ambition CIH crossover podcast. This podcast is our response to Scotland's Festival of Housing 2022. This is another backstage podcast record with some of the speakers from one of the panels. Again, I'm here with Callum Homchuk and Duncan Smith. Yeah, Callum, do you want to introduce this one? The second podcast that we took part in at the Housing Festival was looking at uh, Four Nations One PRS, which were delighted at CIH to be supported by Dan and the team with Zero Ambitions um, to record that, be part of the Housing Festival. So in this podcast, we heard from Ken Gibb uh, at Cash, we heard from Daryl McIntosh at Property Mark, we heard from Douglas Haig, who's a board member at CIH Cymru, and Janet Hunter from uh, Housing Rights Northern Ireland, and each of them from one of the four nations of uh, the UK to talk about the the similarity and the differences in the PRS. You know, the PRS is a much maligned, often part of the housing system, but it's incredibly important. It's incredibly important and doesn't get the respect that it actually needs and deserves within the housing system. I think we can absolutely have a debate and discussion about the size and the scale of the PRS. I think that's a discussion, debate that the PRS, certainly in Scotland, I'm sure across the US UK, is open and willing to have and recognises that the PRS is not the solution for everybody's housing needs. But it's nonetheless, it's a really important part. And the idea between this debate uh, at the housing festival was just to understand, actually, how the PRS is progressing. What are the challenges that it's facing? What are the opportunities for the PRS? And how in the face of and some, some of the kind of criticism is that the sector is responding to making itself a, a, a more valuable, a more important, a more progressive part of the housing system uh, across the UK. Now, Dan, I wasn't at that session, but you were. So I wonder yeah. if you get any kind of reflections on how you felt that the conversation went. And I suppose more importantly, how did the how did the speakers how did they see did they see similarities across the UK? Did they feel they're working in separate ecosystems? Um, they definitely responded to well, it was a really interesting session. It was an interesting counterpoint to the the how's it the right to a home session that we'd done previously, because there were themes that echoed right through in terms of the need for we spoke about like the the challenges ahead for housing providers in both instances, but like this is in terms of a, a providing an appropriate standard for tenants. Talking about retrofit, energy efficiency. Obviously, we're going to talk about that. Zero ambitions, you know. I'd be disappointed we, if you didn't. Yeah, um, we talked about legislation in a very similar tenor to how uh, we had with Mike Daly in the, the previous session. So Mike Daly, Governor Law Centre, you may have already listened to, how there's legislation already in place to make people's lives better. It's just not enforced enough. Yeah. And we talked about them as a complementary service in relation to social housing rather than a competitor. Although where we consider the the, the, the housing market in terms of size and capacity, there is inherently the, the PRS sector, the PRS creates competition with social housing. It makes social housing a much more competitive sector to get into, remarkably. What was really interesting was in both sessions, we came up with at least one of the speakers volunteered the solution of uh, local authorities and governments uh, applying compulsory, compulsory purchase orders to rogue landlords to increase the supply for social housing. Like we had strong advocates for social housing in both instances. It was a, it was very different in tone. They offered a really interesting perspective across the the whole of the British Isles. Yeah. Uh, so, your point there around the kind of compulsory purchase orders. Now we've got a debate in Scotland around actually what they call strategic acquisition. So you've got yeah. social landlords buying back um, kind of private properties. You know, and actually linking into probably zero ambitions as well. You know, we're not going to build every home that we need. Actually, if we can repurpose existing buildings, actually, we look at the kind of carbon savings from that. That's a positive. And actually, the, the cost of land and other associated costs, you can buy something a purpose built for a large family instead of having to build it. Actually, there's a, there's a lot of benefits to that. So I think that's certainly in Scotland we're seeing that debate. And I think that mm. absolutely has its place. We just have to be mindful about the scale of this and not take some ideological, dogmatic approach to let's just shrink the PRS to a... Um, my perspective to shrink it to such a minute size as if it's a it's an evil that needs to be rid of. The PRS is massively important, you know. Oh, before, you know, off camera, um, it it provides access uh, to people quickly who need it, and that's that's massively important. 
and, hu- and this is what we had a chat just earlier on about hugely important economically because when you have uh, economic models, whether they be city, regional, so you, you need to adapt to the demand for workers in specific areas, and that that might be temporary. It, it might it might be it might even be seasonal. But but the the point is, if you don't have the access to affordable housing through private rented sector for industry for the economy, then that has massive knock on effects. So it's 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 not just an idea. The ideological position that social housing should be for everyone is something that I think is, is, is you know, as, as of the 50s, we need a much more, you know, robust and, yeah, a much more responsive uh, private rent sector. But I think I think, I think think that private rent sector gets a bad name for probably a small few. I don't know if you, how you feel about that, Callum, but I think the vast majority of private rentals are of a high quality, of a good quality, certainly. Uh, and there's also the the, the the counter argument that if you have local ownership by landlords who are in the, 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 the local area, who are resident in the local area, then that can only be a good thing in terms of sort of wealth generation and creation. So that would be my top and swath. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not private, bad, social, good. If you look yeah. at uh, Quadro Social Housing's Twitter feed, like he's just highlighting like yeah. poisonous, hairy spiders yeah. living in people's accommodation, social accommodation in Brixton. Yeah. Like like actual spiders hunting yeah. mice and cockroaches in people's houses. That's social housing. That ain't good. It's, it's uh, yeah, it is. That is a false dichotomy. Yeah. What we just need is better housing for everyone. Yeah, there's so much any political debate, policy debate is binary, isn't it? And that people have choose, choose their camp and say that's good and that's bad and that's, that misses the complexity and the nuance of any situation. Absolutely, Duncan, you're spot on. You know, the vast majority of private landlords are doing a, a cracking job. And you know, Danny talked about the experience of your private landlords kind of years ago. Actually, most people have that. You have a good relationship that can be flexible around kind of rents and uh, the service they provide and supports you. Yeah, there's bad bad tracks in every sector in society. You know, whether it's areas, whether it's education, whether it's been collected, literally everywhere has bad practice. It's not yeah. on the PRS, and that's you know again <laughs> we, we talk. It's just we want yeah. to find a means to improve it, absolutely, but not at the cost of like just undermining yeah. it. It's just it's it's smacks of simplicity. Yeah, it's not just the landlords either. My cousin, he's got a place. He lives in Sydney, <laughs> the most overheated property market yeah. in the world potentially, and. He couldn't buy there, so he and his partner, they bought in Brisbane and they bought it as an asset, so a wealth accruing asset, and they rent it out. So come the pandemic, he's making enough money, he can look after himself now, and he told the property agent in Brisbane that he he has looking after the property. But yeah, if the tenants are struggling, just tell them not to worry about rent for the next couple of months. Would the management agency allow that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not a chance. It isn't fair to always blame the landlord. But, you know, I live in London and in my experience, moving every 12 months to two years, uh, I've only had one good landlord in that whole time. I've only had one responsive landlord. I only had one landlord who I think was actually declaring the property. But, you know, it's that sort of situation. And in an overheated rental market, and it's much worse since I got out of it. Like, yeah. it's it's really inhospitable. <laughs> oh, man, competing. Like, there are sealed bids in wow. uh, the rental market now. That's a common practice yeah. for housing in Scotland. Yeah. It's a way of capping people's gazumping of one another, yeah. controlling the, the market. But sealed bids for renting. Blows my yeah. mind. Uh, well, this is this is a good point, Dan. Sorry, sorry, Callum, but because you, I unfortunately couldn't can make the event, but you you were you were at this particular. And where the statutory powers that local authority have in relation to the private rented sector was that discussed? Because I think what is possibly not as well known, certainly the general public, is the legislation that's currently in place to ensure that private landlords are compliant and they're providing good quality housing was was that discussed I mean, and how did people I, i'm assuming as a as a as a as a chartered housing um a group people would know that but was that discussed at the, at the same time? in the broader sense i mean we spoke mainly in terms of there is legislation out there to make people's lives better the failing we have comes from local authorities or local government and central government not enforcing the legislation that's there douglas Haig, he spoke about taking parliamentary representatives in his in his presentation, yeah. taking parliamentary representatives around the area to meet people who had problems and to acknowledge the problems and see if they could get them dealt with there on the spot. You know, 
He's a landlord. He's a very confident man. He was the most positive about his trade than anyone else. And to his credit, he he was doing something. He was able to make a very positive case, which, I mean, this is something that comes up in the conversation. The private rented sector, it struggles to make a positive case for itself. When, I mean, the case that you made just before we started recording, Duncan, and you've made on here is much more positive than I heard in the room on the day and I have ever heard more generally. And I think there's a... There is an opportunity for private rental sector landlords to make that case. This isn't mm. about coming up with nonsense marketing. You know, you're not selling mm. coke, but mm. there are positives to be sold. Like so mm. long as one isn't gouging one's tenants and one is providing an appropriate standard of accommodation. And by appropriate, mm. I don't just mean the least you can possibly get away with. I mean making someone's life more than livable. Then that's a there is a strong case to be made everywhere. It doesn't have to be about profiteering or gouging or landlordism as a epithet. Well, this might be this might be controversial, and and, and sorry, Callum. So I I come from a certain area in Glasgow and 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 the and the ring of it. and in particular, I'd say over the last twenty years, there's been a noticeable increase in private lets in one specific area, which I think is and it's on a tube line, so it serves probably a mixture of the big hospital, which is. Um, Big Queen Elizabeth Hospital, as well as student accommodation, and of course, um, uh, retail workers in, in the city centre. And there's quite a positive case around that traditional um, tenemental stock column. That I would argue, and this is anecdotal. There's 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 nothing I've got here which is which is uh, which is an academic piece to support this. But it's it's quite clear, and I know you know the dreaded house prices, but you can see house prices going up, and that the quality and the, the quality of private rentals available in this area has certainly had an impact, or has certainly is noticeable. And I think you need that. You need you need to have a private rented sector which is responsive to local economic needs, and that's and social housing just can't accommodate that in a, in a way that's flexible. The, the private rented sector can. But yeah. conversely to that point, you do have the instance where through things like right to buy, you have homes yeah. within the same block which are rented out exactly the same standard of accommodation will be rented out at up to 100% greater rental yeah. value yeah. than like, yeah. And that's hard to justify. And this is the negative that this is the only bit we ever really hear. I mean, Dan, you talked about, you know, maybe, you know, some experience with landlords, they're not necessarily have always even put the, the property through the books and talk about the kind of the, the, you know, the <laughs> yeah. power and balance sometimes there is for tenants which is all, you know that's ultimately what it is it's a, you know it's a kind of relationship of power and actually you know we can link this back to the previous discussion on rights because actually what people want what everybody wants you want to know your rights and responsibilities don't you that is that if you've got if you've got clarity over what you're entitled to and how it can be enforced then you're on to it, you know, and whether that is through your landlord, whether that's through a local authority, an ombudsman, a regulator, a sheriff, a police chief, a fire marshal, no one cares. But you just actually clarity about what you can expect as a tenant, whether it's social tenant, private tenant or anything, and how you go enforce that. That's what you want. That You want that because if you've got that and you've got confidence, then you start to have confidence in a system. Yeah. And then you start not to have what we've had with ITN or Quadro and that actually happened because yeah. things aren't because the local authority or the private landlord doesn't let things slip into disrepair. And actually right. people you only get more responsible people become private landlords because they recognize yeah. this isn't this just an investment. This is a real job. Yeah. Which it is. You know, it's a real responsible you're literally giving someone a home. It is it's yeah. massively important. It can be an investment. I'm they're not naive, we get that, yeah. but is there's responsibilities come with that. So if we've got much more clarity over rights and responsibilities for both tenants and landlords, suddenly you're creating a better system. Yeah. You're, you're neatly linking back to our previous discussion, and you're you're just you're profounding more balance in a kind of housing system. You're kind of you're taking out the bad landlords, which is what the PRS people, yeah. everyone in that panel will want to see. They don't want the bad landlords because it ruins their reputation. Yeah. You get them out. We can have that strategic acquisition, and suddenly people know what they do, and we'll see. A, we'll just see a better, fairer, more accessible housing system. Yeah. It's easy as that. Well, yeah, you know. I mean, this is my hope for the EPC. We we spoke to a, a few guys a few months ago uh, on our podcast about the change in uh, landlord behaviour that the the new EPC regs could precipitate. You know, making homes more habit- habitable. Yeah. They were quite dour about it. 
It was Adrian Lehman and uh, Bill Bordas, the, the guys from usablebuildings.com. Immensely experienced professionals, 40 years in the game, looking at how buildings are used and predicting the future. I, I see that with rising energy prices and greater uh, stringency with regard to regulations, there is the opportunity for sort of behaviours to become much better. And if that can be coupled with people understanding their rights better and landlords understanding what a tenant's rights are better, which is something that often isn't the case. It's easy to become a landlord. It's much harder to become a good one. Things, things could improve. It's not all negative. Um, there was one thing I'd like to return to before we, we roll the, the record, which is Ken Gibb referenced the right to, not right to buy, the, the compulsory acquisition of housing stock as a solution in Glasgow. And he cited, is it Nidri Road? Was that compulsory? So, it was, yeah. I think Nidri Road had fallen into disrepair. The Southside Housing Association, Callum, who had uh, who'd bought it, I think they were all empty, though. I've got a funny feeling they were, you know, there was no tenancies in there. It was literally the roof was falling. It could be wrong. But I mean, that's a that's an interesting case study. All housing people and landlords check that because it's about applying benefit standards to a housing block. It's quite expensive, but it's an amazing project. But he spoke about that as a solution that would be available to all. But certainly in England, and this is where looking at the whole of the British Isles is an interesting prospect because in England that's just not possible. Local authorities aren't able to raise money to buy housing stock or yeah. to create new housing stock. It is prohibited one way or another either directly or indirectly they aren't able to to raise the capital to invest and they are forced by legislation to sell off their housing stock to people uh, who want to buy it and that means it is a magnificent solution in glasgow and it might be potentially available in wales and northern ireland but that's just something that isn't available to england and uh, I didn't dig into it in the session because it was Scotland's Festival of Housing. <laughs> the Scotland's Festival of Housing doesn't want to hear the Englishman talking about England's problems. You have enough of that with uh, the greatest British sportsman of all time, Andy Murray, etc. But this is quite interesting, Cal, because even though th- this is we're kind of verging into Innerfit and 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 um, and the technical side of of what we discuss in our podcast, the theme is about about rights is about human rights because what Dan and I have been talking about with with a number of social landlords in the last couple of months is the sustainability of ten- the sustainability of stock the sustainability of tenancies but not from what perhaps others might think or sustainability in general which is perceived as being you know environmentally sustainable yeah that's of course important but if we're renting homes that cost three or four thousand pounds to heat that's the sustainability question that's the human rights question and I suppose. You know, what we'd probably talk about in months and years to come is how we can have a housing product that that meets any income stream, whether that be, you know, rich or poor, in, in, in terms of how we can provide housing within that framework of human rights. No, I mean, it's a, it's a massive, it's a massive, you know, we, we talk about the, the move to kind of these higher EPC ratings, and we have in no way got the intellectual capacity or not to understand how we're going to do that. How are we going, you know, that's a, it's a good example where you say, well, the state can buy these properties and retrofit, and that's that's wonderful. Where that can that can't happen in every situation. They just <laughs> literally the money doesn't exist. So, what is the balance between the state and the private landlords or private owners actually investing in these higher in, um, these higher levels kind of EPC performing homes? Who pays for that uh, outlay? Who pays for the higher costs? Well, um, funnily enough, you're talking to the man who set it up in Renfrewshire. Like, not me, obviously. Uh, <laughs> Duncan Smith. And perhaps this is an op- perhaps we should address this on another podcast, either ourselves or yours, on another day, because there are ways to do it. There are contracts mm. that can be signed which ensure a quality of build and the yeah. integrity of the product that's delivered, which is all too often lacking in all building, private and social. I mean, that's, I mean, let's do that. I suppose because one of the big things that I see from the Scottish government's um, heat building strategy is that you know we talk about the totality of you know, decarbonising our stock at thirty-three billion, and the state is going to leverage in one point eight billion. Big amount of money, but clearly not enough. So where does the rest come from? And you know, if, and if that estimate's like any other estimate around public spending, it's going to be a lot more than that. And that we just, I, 
it's not my area of expertise, but I am not aware of much that says how we can narrow that gap. Yeah. Um, and it'd be interesting, and that I think that and that's going to dominate discussion. This parliament, next parliament, um, because we're all agreed on the direction. We just don't know how to get yeah. there. So I, I think this needs this is this needs we can cut this bit out, but this needs a uh, Callum and and us to talk because what Dan and I are really interested in is just that question: is we accepting the first part is accepting a, a non-market led approach where the where associations or landlords own the design and I don't necessarily mean they have to design it themselves but they have to own the relationship of a design quality to, to a certain standard to a certain outcome so you, you can't address £3,000 heating bills and hope the market's going to deliver you that they won't um, the, the question is okay that might cost twenty five or £30,000 or £35,000 or God knows maybe even £40,000 in Nidri Road it costs £80,000 right now you you, you you can definitely argue the moral case for there is a value in that against the cost. Absolutely. If you're going to put four older people in there who are going to spend three or four thousand pounds heating their homes, that's morally not, not right. However, how can you ask a, a housing association or indeed a council to borrow against, against that asset? And, and and then what you're going to do is force people into rent poverty. So you might have zero bills, but rent, you know, rents of Four or five grand a year, and I think there's a there's a great great question in how we look at the financing of retrofit in a way that's sustainable for the associations. I mean, absolutely, and then that, but that's and that's one part of the system though. We talk that's you know we're talking about kind of social housing there. That's and that's a massive yeah, important yeah. now yeah. the whole connected system. And back to your point earlier about you know the the imbalance between you've got a kind of social housing stock and former stock around kind of rent levels. Then we we'll find the same amongst the kind of the heating bills and the energy system. And there's a there's got to be a way that, but the state can't cover it all either. So you know whatever part of the state we're looking at, there has to be a recognition for. Um, people like myself who are owner occupiers or mortgage owners at least so, yeah. <laughs> sure. a long long time um, but those on that path potentially to owning a home have got a responsibility to make a bit of a kind of contribution to that themselves um, yeah. probably more than I'd want to uh, but yeah. nonetheless that's fair yeah hey, alright so we'll roll the, the, the recording again bear with us it starts off a little bit choppy but it, it tidies up just for the sake of those listening with the speakers are representing the British Isles, so it will make them easier to identify. We have Alice Simpson, the speaker uh, from the session and a board member of CIH Scotland. Daryl McIntosh, who's a policy manager at Property Mark. He is also a Scotsman. Professor Ken Gibb, also Scotsman. I believe we introduce him a bit better. Douglas Haig, uh, board member of uh, CIH Cymru. He's the gentleman with the English accent and Janet Hunter, CEO of Housing Rights in Northern Ireland with the appropriate accent to render them identifiable. Cool. Right. Enjoy. We'd love to hear what you think. Cheers. It's probably also worth noting that you'll hear Alex in this recording. Alex Blondin from Zero Ambitions. He was there on the day and in the room. He's on holiday in the mountains uh, in southern France, so he can't make it to the podcast record today. So what was your brief today for the, the session? Just, yeah. just to give you a bit of context, it's just a chat. We're just having a little bit of a conversation, giving you opportunities to say anything you might have. Got the opportunity to say on stage or response to something someone else has said. Alex has put together some questions. I've got a couple. We can you've, got, you've got all those questions you didn't get to ask. Yeah, Alice has got two pages. <laughs> no, so we were looking at um, the um, housing systems in the four nations since devolution um, and how, um, how there's been some divergence, what's stayed the same and how we can learn from that or what challenges there are in that. It was really interesting hearing the different tone between, I'm afraid I only got to three, two, three of the, the presentations today, and... The focus seemed to be primarily on like, oh, I wrote it down. Standards, quality, mm. affordability, the difficulties that people face on both sides, right enough. But the majority of them alluded to a lesser or poor experience for tenants rather than looking at the, the more potentially positive angles. Uh, and like particularly when you were referring to the bottom end of the market. Yeah, I was wondering, like, is there a, is there a positive story to be told out of all of this? Because, like, like, legislation, regulatory changes, they appear to be geared towards uh, 
Get to what's preventing bad practice, not really providing a positive tenant experience, whatever that might mean right now. Like my own experience is like I've only ever had one good landlord. <laughs> that is primarily having been in the, the infamous London rental market, which is a slightly different beast, I am presuming. Like it was really interesting hearing the one of the QA contributors. So the guy who stood up for the landlord in the, the session to ask for a more positive perspective. And the best he was able to offer, even in asking that, was most landlords landlords are not that bad. Which itself has a quite a negative inflection. <laughs> so uh, Douglas, you offered a much more positive flex in what you were how you were articulating the situation. You know, you described uh, like positive <coughs> action. Like there is regulation already in place, it just needs stronger enforcement. You were and that with uh, parliamentary representatives, offering your time to, to look at the actuality of the situation, not just keep recounting the myths. So, like, there is a lot of negativity around the space. But, like, is there a positive story that can be told in this? Like, uh, well, I think that's, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's, I think that's, that is probably what um, Paddy was looking for in the answer to his question, is you're, you're only ever hearing the negatives, because... Good stories is, is well, the landlord's just doing his job, or the landlord's just doing what he's supposed to do. That doesn't make for uh, a good narrative. It doesn't make for a good press release. Um, and I was just saying to, to Janet, Janet has our, our helpline um, for for tenants who feel aggrieved. Yeah. Shelter have their helpline for tenants who feel aggrieved. Where's the middle one for the tenants who said that was a great landlord? He did X, Y, and Z. It doesn't exist because nobody wants nobody wants to hear it. Um, so there are lots of goods, um, uh, lots of good examples uh, out there. But just nobody wants wants to hear it because that's yeah. that's they're doing what they should. They're sticking to the legislation. We are just hearing a small sector um, who have been have been aggrieved or felt aggrieved um, and and perhaps not taken the um, the routes that they should for justice. I think one of the things that I find quite frustrating is that whenever we talk about the housing sector, um, even if somebody is looking at the private rented sector and how it's operating, they always compare it to be substandard to the social housing sector. Mm-hmm. Um, and that isn't always the case. Um, but then there is all the different mechanisms that get wrapped around it as well. So, for instance, one of our, one of our longest-term tenants had been in and out of temporary accommodation and homelessness services for about five or six years. She's now secure, had to have been in a secure tenancy with us for six years. So the social sector wasn't working for her, and the private sector is. Okay, yeah, that's yeah, a yeah. curious story. So the first speaker for the, the sake of the audio media was Daryl, and then uh, we were joined by Alice. So I was yeah. just I was going to say that what is often said, of course, is that it is a market, you know, and, and as with other markets, uh, you get bad and good experiences. And if there are bad experiences which are, you know, break laws uh, to, to do with health and safety or whatever, you know, then you'd expect uh, there to be a consequence of that. And it's much harder in a market context to... To, to sort of trumpet the, the, the quality, the good, positive qualities, without third parties seeing that as, well, there's, there's something going on here where somebody's being, somebody's, what, why would somebody say something as good as what I'm saying? And so I think it's harder. There's an asymmetry. It's a lot easier to uh, imagine in a market context if something isn't working, that there's a part of the sector that isn't working very well, that that will, that will capture headlines, that will capture political responses, as, as was said during the panel. It's quite different the other way around, though, because because in markets we don't tend to trust people saying good things, I think, about well, then, these things. So you're right to an extent, Ken, but like, who was it who mentioned like a a consumer aspect? Me. So it was yeah. Uh, so Douglas mentioned the consumer aspect. So if we're talking about consumer markets, that would ma- you know primarily that's going to be like goods rather than services, and they constantly tell positive stories. I don't I don't know if they do actually. I, well, I, think, I don't think, I don't think it's not it's not like what I'm trying to say is it's not like a. We don't really accept these things as objective facts. Normally, you know, I, th- yeah. I think generally speaking, if somebody says you really ought to try this supplier of this service, or you really ought to eat this, or you should really go to that restaurant, you start to wonder, are they getting paid to say that? You know, it's, that's what I'm getting. At. I think it's, it's the there's a fundamental difference between somebody saying a positive thing about a good or service for just because they think they really want to share that, as there is with the negative side, which is about actually breaking the law and, and, and doing things which there's a general sense that this is unacceptable. Yeah. 
And how, but how, how do you then convert that into a broader, more accurate sense of what a sector or a rental market looks like? I'm just saying there are some, I think, behavioural reasons why, why third parties don't take that. I'm curious, Douglas, because you mentioned data a lot, and I think you have an idea there because you keep saying data is a solution. And I was just interested, as what you said, Ken, here about you know it's very hard to rationalise between people very happily talking about all the bad stuff. Even you don't see TV shows about how good landlords are; you see about how bad they are. But is there anything with what you're talking about, which is effectively user research and understanding uh, behaviour, that would actually have a solution to this? I mean, it's it's it, it's a it's it's a complex. Um, subject. I mean, you know, the, the, if you look at the data that's already out there, I mean, you know, one of the, in, in this particular context, there's, there's English Housing Survey does a set tenant satisfaction rating. The and it's last seven or eight years that I followed it, it, it for the private rented sector, it's between being between eighty and eighty five percent. I can't remember what it was this time around, eighty two, eighty three, something like. That. Um, uh, but you know, I think a lot of markets or companies would be pretty happy if that was. Ha- their, their response rate in terms of surveying their customers that that over eighty percent of their customers were, were were either satisfied or very satisfied with their service. Um, so I think I think you know, not enough is is paid attention to that. But you've also got to look at it. it was it it's not a it's not a normal market like buying something from Amazon and getting a product and receiving it and going great. It delivered. It was delivered in twenty four hours and it works because when you live in a house. You have certain obligations as the con- if we're going to use the phrase consumer because that was where, where this yeah. conversation came from. But as the consumer, you, you actually have a lot of things you have to do, and in most consumer markets, you don't really. You know, if you go to a restaurant, your basic thing is you pay your bill and and you don't you, you don't treat your. Uh, uh, your, your waitress, like uh, uh, well, there's that court case in, in well, that case in Wales at the moment, where the senior lawyers um, uh, treated the waitress terribly, and the, and yeah, so so you, yeah, but but the so so and but both sides, and I will say both sides don't enough know enough about either side uh, of that yet, and and I think you need to be to a certain extent, a reasonably educated tenant. And I think you definitely need to be a more educated landlord. And obviously, we are strongly promoting the landlord side. But I think the, what, a lot of disputes that happen in the private rental sector is because people don't understand what they're supposed to be doing. I, I think that's why the, you, know, you Daryl, raised the point about the shortcomings of the information hub that's been proposed in the renter reform white paper to come. And I think that's got great potential, actually. I think you're absolutely right, though. It's going to be the minimal thing rather than the maximal thing. But actually pro- providing a, a, a focal point for both landlords and tenants, which give them the information that they need to use, and also the kind of routes that you take if some if things happen, which isn't about a tribunal or a legal thing, yeah, but actually yeah, understand yeah. their obligations, their obligations on both sides. You know, and then making it clear to everybody that's there, that we've done this in really plain English. It's your responsibility to understand these things, and the landlord should be culpable, but so should the tenant yeah. in that sense. I think that's a great opportunity. It's not going to happen, I don't <laughs> think, but that's, that's, what, that's what we should aspire to in Scotland to do that. I think. Can I make a very simple comment here? Please do. I, I think there are a lot of very good properties in the private rented sector. I don't think it particularly suffers from a negative image in Northern Ireland. I said that during the event. You know, it's one of the few places if you have to rent that you can live in a shared community and that's very important for people. And maybe that helps to kind of offset what might otherwise be a negative image. But I, I think it works very well for people who have a reasonable amount of money and choice. It just doesn't work well for people who, who don't have the choice. Yeah. It's, it's just for us, for our, in our experience, and obviously we are a charity working with people who tend to be at that lower end of the market. It, it just doesn't work because they don't have any... It's the imbalance of power. Well, I think you're absolutely right. And it isn't a traditional market. Like we've all uh, addressed that in one manner or another. Like uh, because choice can be minimised through. Uh, like in London now, it's mm. unbelievably competitive. Trying to find somewhere to rent. Mm. That's driving mm. rents up. We now uh, one of my neighbours. He's a lettings agent, and they're getting sealed bids. Like the Scottish housing market for not necessarily that good quality rental property in that market. 
Now that's an especially overheated market, like right enough, it is an extreme example. But it's not, it doesn't seem right. And it was really interesting, uh, I think you mentioned the, the change of tenure. Like, so, residents or tenants uh, at the lower end of the market, like, the desire to get them out of yeah. private rental into social housing, which would be a beautiful solution, but all too often it's not really viable because in England in particular, there isn't any opportunity to build more. Well, there's, there's absolutely minimal opportunity to build or acquire more social housing. So it is a captured market. So, I mean, that's, and that's a really important point. I mean, I was trying to convey uh, in the Q&A that uh, the, rent, the rental market, because it's at the centre of the system, because of where things happen first, where the, the pressures are, are going to be, particularly at, at the lower end, that what happens there reflects what's not happening elsewhere. So that yeah. lack of social housing and the lack of capacity of a system to deliver social housing in England is a huge issue. So what happened, what my example in Glasgow is where the council have explicitly decided to allocate some of their treasure, some of their, their resources to actually purchasing properties from private landlords to, to, to provide them at a low cost to a housing association who then provides them the social housing because they want to change the management and the, and the way. So it's a kind of enforcement actually, it's a kind of enforcement action in an area to try and start to change the, the what, where the private rental sector isn't working, where it's, it's failing. Now that's very, that's rare and in Glasgow we can all know where it is and it's, it's a very unusual sort of set of circumstances. But the Glasgow City Council has had a practice of doing that going back to the 70s and 80s. So the, this is something that they've, they've they started to use new, newer powers to do that. But you'd only do it in a small basis because you only need to do it. But also it's, it's still expensive. There's lots of people have to pay to make that uh, 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 go forward. I'm going to have to go actually. I've got to meet somebody else. My, my apologies. But no, no problem. Well, thank you for sure. the time you've been able to afford us. Good. Good to see everybody. Thanks, Jane. Good to see you. Good, great, Jane. Thank you. Um, I think I would just um, like to say that I, I don't agree that there isn't any room for people in low incomes in the private rented sector, possibly because 70% of our tenants are. Mm-hmm. But I would say that you know, we're all talking about new plans to implement new things and we don't need to, we've already got the power so we want to lead by example in the private rented sector, we want to give more options to people that are on lower incomes so that they don't have to go to the bad landlords but it's um, local authorities and governments that are choosing to allow those bad landlords to continue to exist because they've got the legislation in place to be able to take them out of the market yeah, I think that's what it is. There's a lack of enforcement, isn't it? They'd say the regulations are there. And I think we talk, we, you, you mentioned affordability, um, and then that's that's a message that keeps getting relayed by by whether it's the, the, the charities or the government. It's not unaffordable for everybody, the PRS. It is, again, mm-hmm. perhaps it's a certain section. There are a lot of people who choose to live in the PRS mm-hmm. because it suits their lifestyle, mm-hmm. because they want to move about. So it's it's not unaffordable for everyone. And again, I think from the other side, I think some of the governments, I think the Scottish government in particular, just consider everyone in the PRS is waiting on social housing, and it's not the case. You know, and the same people are, are happy in the yeah. PRS. So, could you find yourself in a situation where an organisation like the NRLA is lobbying for greater enforcement and more social housing? I think to you just ameliorate yeah. these yeah. issues. You're you you at that right now. Uh-huh. Yeah, we are. If you look at our website, one of the main main things is is, is actually get your act together and, and, and build the right amount of social housing and, and, and make it accessible to it. Um, but more importantly, it is about... I mean, we've published a paper called uh, Postcode Lottery of Enforcement and, and you look at how little enforcement is taking place and and uh, how many people are on the, the road landlord register in England. It's in single digits still, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's it, and that's been in place since. If you can find it, if you can get access to it, that is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's not it's not publicly accessible. So, I mean, the the, the you, you look at Rent Smart Wales that was supposed to improve in Wales. This part of the Housing uh, Housing Wales Act. This was supposed to bring in improved uh, enforcement action and and a central resource for enforcement for local authorities with, with trickier cases because I realised there are some difficult cases to enforce. Um, and, and all of the enforcement action that's been taken by Rent Smart Wells is, is down to lack of registration or licensing. 
which is a bureaucratic process that they put in place. So they're just enforcing their own new law, not supporting the laws that were already there to help things. That's not improving the quality. That's not that's not prosecuting any landlords or taking action against the landlords because of the standard of their property or the practice of their of, of how they're how they're operating. Uh, and and um, the housing planning. Uh, 2019 uh, stuff was supposed to you know, bring in greater uh, abilities for landlords to be fined by the local authorities. You know that action's not being uh, followed up or, or enforced either. So, so let's let's take stock of what we've got. Let's figure out how do we use it as effectively as we possibly can. We want we want the bad landlords out of the market. The only way we can't do that ourselves. The only people that can do that are the, are the enforcement officers. Yeah. So, Janet, I just were... want to I just want to come back on, on Alice's point about um, the appropriateness of the sector for low income households in the regulatory context. I think the difficulty for us, speaking from Northern Ireland, is we don't have the regulatory framework mm-hmm. which you have in Scotland. I think if we had the regulatory framework you have in Scotland, we would probably feel very differently. And I I couldn't agree more about the enforcement part as well because there's no point in legislating if you're not going to enforce it and certainly our experience is there's virtually no enforcement virtually no enforcement there's there's a, a, a culture really of apparent apathy when it comes to enforcing what little regulations we do have I'm quite tickled by the, this, this notion, the spectre of the landlord <laughs> now asking for <laughs> I know, make so us better thank you yeah. It's quite frustrating because you know the like bad landlord isn't going to join the landlords association. No. Um, with the new deal for tenants, we submitted a full consultation response as homes for good. Um, I would say our view and Scottish Association of Landlords consultation were relatively similar in lots of aspects, and it's going why not use the powers and tools that we already have available. Um, but even then, you know, two months ago there was a big newspaper article that came out talking about how six or seven landlords have been struck off the register. One of them I've been complaining about since 2012. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, bad lord, bad landlords do exist, but mm. oh, yeah. but they are not the story of the PRS. No, they're not absolutely the not. But they they are probably what attracts most media attention. But they, but it's also important to say they do exist. Mm-hmm. But every sector has a role. Yes, I mean that's why you have your solicitors' disciplinary yeah, tribunal. Yeah, I mean right. everybody has a role. Yeah, yeah. So it is just making sure that they are dealt with effectively. Absolutely. Uh, and your point is, yeah, that they're not the people who jo- who join the associations, or they're the people who, who or sign to, up to national or sign up to, or go in the helpline to check that they're complying with the law, and that's it's just. So I was interested in discussing also another aspect. So we're talking about, yes, rogue landlords. I suppose we're talking a bit about the extremes. I know they are very prevalent. But coming back to something that the podcast talks about a lot here is uh, promoting low energy buildings, retrofit. There's going to be a point where, uh, in, in my view, buildings that do not meet certain energy standards that actually do contribute to fuel poverty are going to be sort of, should be equated to rogue rogue landlords in a sense. So what are your views on that and how do you think that the perception of homes at the moment, yes, a home is somewhere where you can walk in, you're comfortable, you shouldn't be living in squalor, etc. But eventually, should you not shift to other considerations such as making sure you have a, a good heating system that doesn't cost the earth, that you have all the insulation you need, etc., etc. Yeah, I think well, it's important to set the, the legislative landscape, and I don't know for Scotland and Northern Ireland, so you can correct me, but um, so at the moment you can't rent your property if you've got an EPC rent rating of, of F, F or G, um, and then there's now targets to raise that to EPC level C. Uh, by 2025 um, uh, and existing tenancies by 2028, I think it is, and and Bayes have very made it very clear as well that that that's that's still a stepping stone. Um, so in terms of will they be rogue if they don't? And I don't. I, what I want to say, I don't like the word rogue because rogue mm-hmm. seems cheeky chappy. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it, uh, it's criminal. Uh, you're breaking the law. Okay. Uh, so so it's it's yeah. So so from that perspective, you are you will be breaking the law. So therefore, you won't you you shouldn't be in the market for those things. So so those things are are, are happening. That's for England and Wales. I, I don't know. Yeah. Northern, Northern Ireland. That we, we've just introduced an act which is going to bring in um, those kind of regulations around energy efficiency ratings. That's not in that's not in place at the moment. Almost half of the properties in the PRS have an energy efficiency rating of less than C. Um, and we have a fitness standard that 
describes adequate heating as a socket which you could plug an electric heater into. So standard, <laughs> the standards are it's a fitness standard which is dates from 1981, and that's considered to be adequate heating. Exactly. Yeah. So it is, and and then it, we do have the highest levels of fuel poverty in the UK, frankly. And so I think it's a really, I think it's a real priority to address those issues. But I think it would need a significant amount of financial investment. I don't think you could ever reasonably expect landlords, you know, to to meet the cost, bring those up to the standards. This is important for everybody. So I, I do think there's a need for financial investment in it and a model that would support landlords to bring the properties up do you have to those standards. What that solution would be? Do you have a view on, on well, the, where the finance should come from? And I, think it should, I think it should come from government. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, so, it's, so I think it's important to also tell the good the good news story around this. I mean, in 2008, we were talking about 68% of full properties being below um, uh, an E or below. Um, that's, I think it's around 19, 20% of all properties are, are in the PRS are around that. But then we have to recognise what the challenges are going forward. So in, in Wales, um, uh, 43% of all properties in Wales, in the private sector in Wales, are um, pre-1919 properties. So very hard to do um, things about this. So you, you can get above the, the ease because you change a boiler or stuff like that. But then carbon-wise, that's a, still a really bad thing to do. Energy efficiency-wise and heating-wise, that's, that's great. Carbon-wise, that's a terrible thing to do. Um, and, and for me, is a backward step. And, and, and ultimately, if we're going to really do this, we need to be focusing on carbon and not just energy efficiency. Very easy to say, given that inflation has just been announced. Yeah. 100%, so, yeah. Well, um, in those terms, like, are you guys concerned about the spectre of heat pumps? There's not enough supply. There's not enough expertise. Well, what was the the announcement for for the the subsidy of heat pumps? I mean, that's air source heat pumps. Ridiculous um, notion. I think it's what fifteen grand to install them, and he was going to give a, a, a poultry amount. So I haven't kept up to date with it. But I was like, you're really trying to incentivize people by by things like that. That's, it's just not going to happen. Because well, gas boilers are set to be phased out. Yeah. Like that is that is a given. There's a, a, a paucity of support in terms of funding to support people to install heat pumps. There's an unwillingness to acknowledge the need for insulation. And there's a shortfall in expertise that would be required to deliver these solutions. And we speak with a lot of people, the heating engineers, who they love heat pumps. But they also know you can do a lot better with a gas heating system, the, the price issues aside. Uh, just through thinking about the proper proper systems design. Yeah. Um, like, uh, yeah, how are you guys... I was going to say coping with it. Like, how are you guys... Uh, what are your fears with regard to this? Or what are your concerns? It's cost. I mean, it's, it's not just landlords who require the, the financial support. It's it's all homeowners if you're looking at trying to, to get to net zero. And to, I mean, if you look at the builders just now... They're still building new built houses and putting in gas boilers, even though they know the regulations are coming. And why are they doing that? Because there are no resources and there are there is no alternative at the moment. Yet we're legislating for cutting off a gas supply with 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 no no solution or no red readily available solution. And it's it's also if you look at the um, well, the Scottish government put a ban on selling petrol and diesel cars and uh, in the next few years. But again, there's still there's no infrastructure in place to support electric vehicles um, or, or longevity of electric vehicles uh, as well. So it is, I think you, you can see the intention if they don't legislate, then we'll just keep going along as it is until we get to that point. But even, so, even the mechanisms are being put in place. So if you look at the various schemes under ECO over the years, uh, you know, they're the, the, the very um, measure specific. So when I mean measure specific, it's like, Oh, you've got no gas, we'll install gas and put a boiler in. Or, oh, you've got no um, loft insulation, we'll just put insulation in. You know, so an individual, and that, you know, it's, it's, it's the money and, and scheme is focused on individual measures. Properly bringing properties up to grade A or even higher is a holistic approach. You have to look at everything within the house, including how that individual lives. 
um, in, in the house and how long they're there. I'm not in my property during the day, um, uh, but you know, somebody that's retired or, or, or not particularly mobile um, may be in their house a lot more. And you, you, you need to design that house and, and the, 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 um, the technology in that house differently to those people. But, but up until now, those schemes have been coming in smash some gas boilers in, then the funding gets stopped yeah. overnight they, to, yeah. to, to, to the point where actually you've got 50 gas boilers you've installed and you don't get paid for. I'm not talking about personal experience here. Um, <laughs> and and, and you're, you're, you're left there. You've trained a bunch of people where you don't need those people anymore or that skill set anymore because yeah. the funding's changed. You, and, and you're looking at heat pumps, you're looking at um, new ways of insulating. You can't just, if you've got to insulate a, even a loft space properly, it's not just about putting rolls of rock wall down. It, it's, it's, it's about doing it properly and allowing the property to breathe at the same time. You need training for that. You need, and, but there's not, there's, there's no, there's no longevity in the market. There's no, there's, there's no promises from government that that will continue to be there. So, so people are, really nervous about that which means that the costs stay really high which means that landlords and owner occupiers just say well we'll wait we'll wait until we absolutely have to do something we'll wait until the cost comes down you and and, the enforcer's knocking at the door (laughs) absolutely but can you can you can you blame them and then you compare some of these measures to the prices of the houses you know like the average house price in Blind Gwent is something like eighty or thousand pounds. You and the measures that I need to do for a pre nineteen nineteen house, because it's going to cost me fifteen grand. You, I, am I? Am I? No, no, it's, it's just not, completely yeah. unaffordable. I mean, fifteen grand sustain. is a very reasonable estimate for a big <laughs> retrofit. <laughs> yeah. What can the PRS do, or are they in accord? Then, okay. So if you're saying that. In the end, you realise you can't really trust what's going to be put in place and what support you're going to be given. What can landlords do and be proactive? What should they be doing uh, whilst we're waiting, in a sense, for that, that sort of yeah. super solution? Well, because this is something that's coming up, you know, as a responsible landlord, you have to have an asset management plan in place. Um, but then you have to then make decisions about whether or not you redecorate a property because you know that you're going to have to spend money on putting in infrastructure um, but there's a problem around as well you know energy efficiency ratings um, are have not changed in line with technology enough so no, where we can't put gas into properties um, and there's electric electric options um, we are forced to put in high heat retention storage heaters to bring up the energy rating oh, gosh, but, uh, yeah, which are much more energy efficient if you've got an electric radiator if you get a really good quality yeah. one but they're just considered the same as a £30 plug-in that you buy at the supermarket yeah. right yeah, so yeah. There's definitely, and, and also the way that solid walls are calculated is, is currently not uh, not the scientifically accepted method mm-hmm. um, so they're actually de- deemed as less uh, energy efficient than they actually are yeah. Still there's, not great, but you know. There's no minimum regulation standard in Scotland yet, but it's it's the regulations have been pulled twice um, due to, to COVID. So I think we were we were meant to be and then uh, an E and N D, but I think they will come in straight at sea. So even as we were told um, that the regulations were coming and um, we were telling our member agents to, to tell the landlords that just just phase it in, just make yeah. upgrades as you go along rather than just being hit with one one bill and yeah. to try and do everything at once. So yeah, they, have a look at it, change your tenancy, see what you can do to improve your energy efficiency as you move along. Undoubtedly, it's going to come. But as I said, landlords are already doing it. I mean, we are by far the fastest uh, improving sector and with the least amount of, of public investment in, in that. I mean, social housing's had billions poured into it to improve its energy efficiency. And, and I think, if I, last I looked at it, I think we're, on, we're nearly on a, like 1% away from the average owner-occupied property now. Um, in terms of the average energy efficiency, so you know, huge, huge changes in in those ten years, and 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 as we mentioned as well, you know, for ten years I have been telling landlords when you do your refurbishment, bring it up to a, a, a C. Don't don't just you know, do bits and pieces. Bring it up to a C. Get it right because you know, when you do your, your, your serious refurbs, and you're, you're doing that once every ten to twenty years. Yeah, and then, so. yeah. You mentioned that the, you're very close behind the the owner occupier uh, market, but like we do a lot of talking to people within the built environment, and the owner occupier market is woefully underpowered mm-hmm. in this regard as well. Like it's it's a parlour state everywhere. I mean, I know the property I live in. I live in a leasehold block, as I talk about on the podcast, which is impossible to upgrade in any meaningful manner. Like I got our EPC rating up to a C 
Uh, I found that because we put our uh, property on the market. We're trying to move to get into a freehold block where we'll be actually able to, to make a difference. But uh, the, the estate agent's photographer carried out the EPC rating and we got up to a C because we'd had new windows put in. Uh, like, you know, it's, it's very strange how it works. <laughs> Mercurial. <laughs> um, right, so we're sort of, again, we've been uh, looking at skirting around landlord reforms and a theme this, this can be the last one uh, the, the theme that came up was uh, fears about landlord reforms so there's a fear about losing stock due to landlord reforms or uh, driving landlords out of the market now one of the curious things about the changes to the EPC ratings was there were a lot of fears about losing landlords and a lot of landlords left but an awful lot of the stock was bought up by more professionalised entities. And there is a, a broad trend that's visible across Europe and North America. So if you look at the largest landlord in the US, Blackstone, massive, like absolutely massive. And they've got designs on Europe. Uh, and there are other entities, like we, we come from a financial services background. And there are lots of real estate investors that uh, have spotted the opportunity in the domestic market because like retail space is more volatile or just losing value. Uh, the domestic, not domestic, commercial office space is, it feels volatile. There's been a lot of confidence lost in it with COVID work from home. Uh, and so it feels like there, there might not be a risk to losing stock. It's just the stock ends up with a single entity as like a different sort of landlord like do you feel this bigger beast breathing down your neck or what do you even think about it at all uh, well I, I think it goes goes um, back to some of the points I was making earlier I mean the, the the people that you're currently talking about that are currently building in the market are building high end stuff mm-hmm. you know this build to rent stuff is not I would imagine, I'm assuming, the average yeah. client that Alice uh, is dealing with to afford to rent. No. Um, so you know, it, it, the, 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 pri- the private sector landlord, the small private sector landlord, deals with a huge range of type of stock. Yes, they have these fancy footballers, party pads, that they, yeah. you know, very nice places, but they've, they've also got your bog-standard two-bedroom house that's in a very affordable area and is rented to people on benefits at, at a rate that they can afford. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, so uh, are, you, are you telling me that BlackRock's really going to come in and start buying up huge areas of Tyler's Town in the Rhonda Valley? I, I would be very surprised. Well, similar firms have entered into the, particularly the Irish market in the, the areas around Dublin. Uh, like they've been buying up great swathes of developments. So they pop up 6,000 units, 2,000 units, boom, they're sold above market rate. So between 15 and 100% above the standard market rate because this, so Blackstone will look at the asset value and how the asset's going to appreciate over time. And if they're buying it from pension fund, they only need to deliver 2% returns of the pension fund. And then, I don't know, they get their admin fees and whatever else they can make on the top. And so, all of a sudden, we have a different way of overheating the, the market, which enables, which disempowers uh, an owner-occupier or a first-time buyer. It's, it's just really strange how uh, all the things work. Butterfly flaps its wings. Okay, let's do it. I think that you could see in, in the Dublin market, you know, it's it's a very extreme example, a little bit much like London. Mm-hmm. Um, Rents are ridiculous in Dublin, so it's quite different from the markets that we're talking about. Um, but I mean, we see it in Berlin as well, which is much less extreme. Like it's it's only in relatively recent times when it's, it's Berlin has a very different rental market from here. Actually, it's much more in line with um, what we're considering. Um, mm-hmm. Like people move their sink when they move houses. Right. Um, mm-hmm. There is rent controls that are there that are reset at void periods, um, but there's much more of a sense of um, belonging built into the legislation than there is in the legislation here I think they see the private rented sector mm-hmm. much more like one, literally yes. one housing sector as opposed to over here where um, it's seen as very, like you've got a long term home in the social sector or you've got 
a short-term thing in the private sector, which isn't true. I think it's very... Yeah. It's true. International comparisons can be very dangerous mm-hmm. because you can, can select the things that you want from international comparisons. I mean, to a certain extent, I think if you, if you, told, if you told most landlords in the UK, exclude the, the, the some, in some areas in Germany, the rent controls, but said, well, actually your tenant has to redecorate your property for you every five years. They have to fit out the kitchen for you themselves. The landlords in the UK probably go, oh, that sounds like a very good deal. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so I think, I think just, yeah, I'm not saying we international comparisons, we make them ourselves, but I think it's really, really important to know the full context yeah. of that. And, and you know, the, the, in Germany, the, the, it's pension money, but not just, not, not, I'm not talking about legal and general pension money, I'm talking about small collective pots of pension mm-hmm. money, yeah. you know, people coming together and putting it in, investing in pensions that, that way. Um, so, yeah, very, very, very different context, but, but very, very good lessons to learn. Yeah, absolutely. Right, so, so is there anything anyone would like to add to the, the conversation before we wrap up? No. 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 Thanks for listening. Hope you made it to the end and uh, we'll we'll be back with something else soon. Cheers. Thanks everyone. Cheers guys. Cheers.